where they say, there is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. And then in the next sentence they say, but just underneath, there's a deadly earnestness. That's my first step. That doesn't mean that I'm walking around nine months into 10, 11, and 12 thinking about drinking. That would, that would be like you're in God consciousness if you're walking around thinking about terms about God. Neither of those are true. I walk around in the consciousness of the presence of God, sometimes without any words, thinking about God in his presence. Matter of fact, and this is up for debate, I think any words about God aren't. I don't think they have anything to do. I think conception brings you to a place where presence is more important than conception. But that's that's to talk about later. But with the consciousness of my first step, that doesn't mean I'm walking around thinking about drinking. That means I'm aware of why I'm doing what I'm doing in this moment with 10, 11, and 12 is directly connected to the truth about me and alcohol. So 10, 11, and 12 don't get all flaky. There is a vast amount of fun about it all. But just underneath, just underneath, there's a deadly earnestness. goes on to say nearly all have recovered. Huh. doesn't say nearly all are still recovering. They solved the drink problem. The next paragraph describes the description of the fellowship. And there's something toward the bottom that's very, very important. <clears throat> talks about the feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in a powerful cement which binds us. Make a note in your book. Page 75 is going to ask you about this cement. It doesn't seem real important now to know that there's two parts to this cement. But if you start to picture this structure, this spiritual structure, this arch that we're going to build to freedom, it has to sit on something. So start to think of this foundation. Bricklayers or anybody that's laid brick will have a better picture of this. But think about building a foundation. That's your first step. But you need to know what's going to hold that first step together. You need to know what the cement is. doesn't seem real important now, but after a fifth step, it's going to be really important. The cement is made up of two parts. Sharing in a common problem. Sharing in a common solution. Two parts to the cement on page 17. There's also a warning on page 17. After they describe what the fellowship feels like for a lot of us, camaraderie and joyousness and democracy, that's how the fellowship feels after you find a common solution, not when you're focused on the common problem. If sharing, and I'll say this again, I said it last night, if sharing in a common problem was good enough for some of us, the county jail would have worked. And the warning on this page is that the co uh, sharing in a common problem by itself was never was not enough to hold us together. What are they telling you there? Fellowship by itself is not enough. Go over to page 18. Bottom paragraph, squiggly lines. There's two great paragraphs here. One of them is a guide for a sponsor, and one's a guide for looking for a sponsor. Ex-problem drinker who's found this solution. This solution. Solution in this book. Who's properly armed with facts about himself and generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. Now it goes on to talk about, to me, it's a great guide in what to look for in a sponsor. The man making the approach has had the same difficulty. Is he a real alcoholic? Same difficulty. That he obviously knows what he's talking about. That his whole deportment, his behavior, shouts to the new prospect, he's a man with a real answer. 
No attitude or holier now, nothing whatever except a sincere desire to be helpful. No fees to pay, no access to grinding, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we found effective. And then I get a promise. After such an approach, I can take up my bed and walk again. I think the line between shouting at the new man that you're a man with a real answer and having no attitude of holier than thou is a, is a, is a statement you could spend the rest of your life in service finding out the fine line between those two. That line, I think, is as powerful as the line from later on as far as working with others that I think you could spend the rest of your life with. And that line is, it's not a matter of giving that's ever in question, but when and how. Page 19, we feel elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Just don't drink and go to meetings implies that alcohol is my problem. Why would the book say the elimination of drinking is but a beginning? Maybe it's because alcohol is my solution. And maybe, maybe if I'm sober in recovery and I don't have ease and comfort, maybe I'm going to go back to the solution, the effect, ease and comfort. See, if you're like me, there's only two things in my life that have ever given me ease and comfort. And both of them, for me, must take place internally. One is one hell of a lot of alcohol, and the other is one hell of a lot of God. Everything else just gave me a little temporary relief for a while. A woman, money, a home, a car. Go into your experience, and I'll bet you're just like me. You're just like me, I'll bet. Times when all the ducks are in a row and I'm still drinking. Times when they're not in a row and I'm still drinking. There's only two things that ever put this guy, gave me ease and comfort. And one was a tremendous amount of alcohol, and the second was a tremendous amount of God. And I don't mean belief in God, nor do I mean belief in alcohol. I mean a deep and effective experience. There's people in this room, just like me, who probably <laughs> think that God brought them to AA. And there's people in this room who have the kind of pious arrogance that I've also had that probably think it's just God that keeps them here. Both are wrong for me. There are two magical powers that brought me. I mean, I, I wasn't just a well-adjusted, healthy guy walking down the street one day and passed an AA meeting and thought to myself, gee, I'd like to go in and fit in with those losers who can't control alcohol or manage their lives. Two magical forces in my life. I'm either headed toward one or the other. Isn't it interesting that one brings you to the other? And two magical forces that keep me here. And we're going to talk about this a little later on. But it's not just God that brought me here, and it's not just God that keeps me here. If all I needed was God to keep me here, I'd be doing it with some people that do a lot better at coming to believe and turning their wills and their life over and inventory and confession and restitution than those of us in Alcoholics Anonymous. But why I need Alcoholics Anonymous is because you remind me of the other magical force, the other magical power, whether you want to call it evil or ego or booze, whatever you want to call it, there's two magical powers in my life, and my bet is, is that God has more power than booze. But both brought me here, and both keep me here. And that's the truth about my first step, and the desire I have to seek this light. We're going to continue to talk about the dragon at your back, and the light in front of you. And this magical distance between the two, where you're not too far into either one. This magical place of grace, where you're in the middle between the dragon and the light. And, and keep in mind, the book's already talked about this in the forward. You remember where it said that Dr. Bob had tried for years spiritual means and he couldn't get sober? 
That's the power of God. And it didn't work for him. And you know why? Because he didn't have his first step. He didn't have that other power. Real alcoholics need both those powers operating. There's some great questions on page 20 in that middle paragraph for someone to ask themselves. Can you take it or leave it alone? Why can't you? Can you drink like a gentleman or just quit? Can you handle liquor? Can you lay off? Is your willpower weak? Can you stop if you really want to? Can you quit for her or him? If the doctor told you you'd get drunk again, would that be enough to stop you, even if you knew booze was going to kill you? Great questions. But I think above that, in the, in the paragraph just above that, in the last line, I think there's a trick question that they fool alcoholics into asking, that some people I know that do this work wait for you to ask, and that question, the way they word it here on that other paragraph just above that is, what do I have to do? And as soon as you can get an alcoholic to say, what do I have to do, all you have to do then is help them see that what he has to do is admit there's nothing that he can do. So it's a trick question. It's tricking you into facing the reservations you have about the first step. Because if you end the first step and there's anything you can do, you don't have a first step. But you've got to start with exploring what it is you think you can do. We're talking without God. We're talking on your own power. What can I do? Come to an honest admission that there's nothing I can do. So now let's look at three kinds of drinkers. And let's see how the tension begins to create itself when you look at the hard drinker. There's hard drinkers in this room. Hard drinkers in this room. Probably nobody in the room except the Alanons will have trouble seeing that they're probably not a moderate drinker. Bottom of page 20. The guy said to me one time, the bottom of this page describes three types of alcoholics. No. The bottom of this page describes one kind of alcoholic and two other kinds of drinkers. First of all, there's the moderate drinker. It doesn't say a moderate alcoholic. It says a moderate drinker who has little trouble giving up liquor entirely, important, important word, if he has a good reason. What do they mean by entirely? They don't mean. Now, let me get this right. They, actually, they can take it or leave it alone. Any, any alcoholic in this room have any trouble seeing that they're probably not a moderate drinker? We have any reservations there? Okay. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. They're all around us in AA. He may have a habit. Now, that's an interesting word to mark because I'm going to bring up this idea. It's possible to be an alcoholic. I'm sorry. It is possible to be addicted to alcohol and not be alcoholic. This man can have a habit. They use the word. He can have a habit for alcohol that could gradually impair him physically and mentally. It might even cause him to die a few years before his time. You mean there's people that booze can kill? We're so prone to saying old Charlie drank himself to death. That means he just never saw he was alcoholic. They're saying here there's a guy who could drink himself to death. It's not alcoholic. If, because here's what this guy needs, a sufficiently strong reason. Ill health. Falling in love, change of environment, warning of a doctor, then add some of your own sufficient reasons. Look back through your life for your sufficient reasons that didn't work. And look at the one that brought you here. And that doesn't mean everyone in this room has not been brought here by a sufficient reason. That means would that sufficient reason by itself have been enough for you to stop without any help from God or anybody else? This man can take that sufficient reason and stop. 
He may even find it difficult and troublesome and might even need to go to treatment. Treatment centers are filled with hard drinkers that all they need is a sufficient reason and they just get better and better and better and better. I went to treatment with one. He was my broker for a long time. He, he had a threat from his wife. She'd leave him if he didn't go to treatment. Went to treatment, came out of treatment, never did nothing with AA, never had a sponsor, never did the work, and his life just got better and better and better. I come out of treatment, I get worse and worse and worse and worse. <laughs> I do not relate to these people who say, I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt like I was home, and everything's gotten better ever since. Because at five and a half months, I'm dying of a part of the disease I don't even know I have. And the program is filled with hard drinkers that all they need, they say things like, I have found everything I've ever wanted in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right? I found enough in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous to get me really pissed off and need the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Then what about the real alcoholic? We're going to take a break here. We're not done with the craving yet. But during the break, I would ask you, if you can take a moment and do a, a short meditation or a little prayer, I would ask to look at two things. One in the middle of the next paragraph. At some stage of your drinking career, did you begin to lose control over the amount once you would start, and is a sufficient reason by itself enough for you to stay stopped. The only two things that separate you and I from the hard drinker. Anything you want to? No. We got to start again right at. My name is Mark. I'm an alcoholic. If you please join me. Uh, repeat after me on this uh, set aside prayer, please. God, please set aside everything I think I know about myself, the 12 steps, this book, the meetings, my disease, and you, God, my physical powerlessness over alcohol once I take a drink. And my mental obsession sober, so I may have an open mind and a new experience with all these things. Please let me see the truth. You know, I told you yesterday, uh, we started out, I started reading some things and working with others, and uh, one of the things that I read to you when it's describing 12-step work is it says, Maybe you have disturbed him about his alcoholism. <laughs> Some of you are a little disturbed. This is what's supposed to be. Don't worry about the ones that are disturbed when you're working with them and they're in the first step. Worry about the ones that get through the first step and everything's just wonderful. Those are the ones you worry about. So we, we've looked at three things. We've looked at the uh, modern drinker. We looked at a hard drinker. I always love sufficient reason. You know, uh, um, I can use this name. In, in Texas, uh, there's a pro basketball team called the Dallas Mavericks, and they uh, last year uh, they had signed a gentleman uh, named uh, Roy Tarpley to a five-year contract for $16.5 million. Now, Roy had had just a little bit of a problem with alcohol and cocaine earlier, and so he had been suspended from the league for three years. And they said to him, Roy, we got... One little reason we'd like to give you, and we'll be happy to pay you $16.5 million, 
We want you to play basketball, but we'd really appreciate it if you not drink alcohol and do that dope. And he signed that contract and said, no problem. He lasted 60 days. That's a pretty sufficient reason to not drink, isn't it? Sixteen and a half million? I'll bet some of you in here think that if you were offered sixteen and a half million, that'd keep you from drinking alcohol. Think about that. Sixteen and a half million dollars and he couldn't stay away from it for sixty days. Huh. What about a real alcoholic? He or she may start off as a moderate drinker. Now look at this. I may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But here's what I'm looking for. At some stage in my drinking, I begin to lose all control of my liquor consumption once I started to drink. Is this me? It has nothing to do with how old you are and how much you drank and how often you drank and blah de blah de blah Isn't that interesting? The big book says that the real alcoholic might not even become as bad as the hard drinker who's not an alcoholic. And we're going to see that so far up to the top of this page, top of page 21, only two things separate me from the hard drinker. He's given a sufficient reason he can stop. I'm given a sufficient reason I start again. See, your sufficient reason to quit is my sufficient reason to, to drink again. <laughs> so sufficient reason separates me from him. And once I start, I can't control the amount. Go on to page 22. It talks about this is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic as our behavior patterns vary. That's another trap of the ego. You go to meetings, you listen to speakers, and this one went to the, see, Joe, Joe's been in the penitentiary. I never, I never spent one day in jail behind alcohol. Well, hell, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Right? And people, I talk DWI. I've never had a DWI. I was fortunate. I drank, I was, uh, you know, I got sober in 82, and back then, Cops would stop you, you'd be drunker in hell, and they'd drive your car home for you. Shit like that. Not like today. I've never had a DWI. Huh. Maybe I'm not like them. My, in other words, the point I'm trying to make is if you focus in on behavior patterns, you're going to miss the whole deal when it's looking at step one. Because, I mean, I've done work with housewives who sat home, and I've done work with guys who've been to the joint several times. That has nothing to do with anything when I'm trying to identify my truth in step one. That's just stuff your ego will use to make you different. That's all. But this, but this description should identify us roughly. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences, there's that word experiences over and over, have shown us that one drink means another debacle, with all of its attendant suffering humiliation, why is it that I take the one drink? Why can't I stay in the water wagon? What's becoming the common sense and willpower that I will sometimes display with respect to other matters? goes on to say there's not a full answer to this. Opinions vary considerably as to why I may react differently from normal people. We know that why Mark keeps away from drink, as Mark may do for months or years, Mark will react much like other men. We're equally positive. Once Mark takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something is going to happen both in Mark's body and mind, which are going to make it virtually impossible for Mark to stop. Does Mark experience abundantly confirmness? To go on into the mental obsession, that's the only piece you need to be convinced about. You don't even have to be convinced that there is sufficient reason for you to stay stopped. We're not even talking. It's been brought up, the difference between me and the hard drinker. But that's what we're going to look at next is staying stopped. See, 
All we've looked at now is what happens after the start. Can you control the amount? See, I used to get lost because of my past experience in treatment and, and having been a therapist. I used to get lost when I would work with the word in my mind. I would work with the word physical craving because I have more information than I need. And my, when I think of physical craving, I start to go to really big words that bring it up here more into my mind. THIQ, neurotransmitters, chemical enzyme reactions. So they would break it down for me and say, don't look at the term physical craving. It's kind of, for some people I think it works. For me it's kind of intellectual. So they would say, do you lose control over the amount once you start to drink? And then I found there's even a more simple ones. Did my drinking go the way I intended it to go once I would start to drink? So look at intent, intent. You ever meet somebody who said they're alcoholic because every time they drank, they got drunk? Well, what if every time they drank, they wanted to get drunk? Then their drinking always went the way they wanted it to. See, I know people in this room, myself included, that had times where they wanted to get drunk and they couldn't. You wanted to have a whole bunch and you had a couple and you're flat on your face because your tolerance is all messed up. Times where you really wanted to get drunk and you couldn't. Remember when it would just get tighter and tighter and tighter and you'd drink right back to sober? You'd miss mm. the... Mm. Times where you wanted to have a bunch and you couldn't. Times you wanted to have a couple and you couldn't. See, I'm powerless over alcohol physically. That's all we've looked at so far because it doesn't go the way I intended to go once I start. Guy tricked me one time. I'm sitting in his house and we're starting to work and he says, let's go to the liquor store in our imaginations, right here in my living room. And we I saw the liquor store, <clears throat> and I know what I go to. My deal is vodka. And my deal that I really want to drink is the flavored vodkas because they didn't have them 14 years ago. <laughs> and what I used to drink, what I used to drink are kamikazes or, or screwdrivers or just vodka. And I really, when I'm in the first step and I go to the grocery store or something, I go right to that absolute citron or whatever it's the citronelle or Boom, right? He said, now pick the bottle. And I could see the wall, the magic wall. I could see the magic wall. I could picture him opening that bottle right? and the genie, right? <laughs> Comes out, right? And uh, he had me right there in the liquor store. He said, now what is it? Funny, I picked, I didn't pick a fifth. I picked a pint. I didn't pick a half gallon. I picked a pint. And uh, he said, well, tell me about where that pint would take you. And I started into this big elaborate story of where I think that first pint would take me. He goes into hysterics. He's laughing. He's laughing at me. He shakes his head. He said, go home and pray about that for a week. Come back next week and we'll, we'll talk some more. And I went home and I started to pray the prayer. Set aside what I think I know about this craving. And I woke up one morning in hysterics laughing. You know what I realized? I don't have a fucking clue where that first pint is. <laughs> you know the truth? It could be just fine that day. You know what else is the truth? I could be dead that night. I could be back in treatment the next day. Highly unlikely. I don't picture myself as one of these people drinking one night, coming back to AA. Could. Could. Could be at my mom's door the next morning. Could be in Tijuana, Paris, Acapulco, in the gutter. Feeling good, feeling bad, not much happening at all. I do not have a clue, based on my 18-year 18, 18 experience with alcohol, where that first pint would take me. You know where it would take me? It would take me exactly where it wanted to take me, because I'm powerless over it. So now I guess we have to talk about 
because this part of the first step is the only part of the steps that separate me from the addict and the Al-Anon and the gambler and the sex addict. Once we get to the mental obsession, any of us in this room are going to be able to talk about, it's good to talk to somebody who has the mental obsession for what you have the mental obsession for, so you have that common bond. But me and the addict in some ways can talk about a mental obsession, and definitely we can all talk about page 52. We can all talk about the spiritual malady. But the first half of the first step, you have to find your own truth, and you'll find in these things that we've written that they talk about using the questions in these chapters to look at alcohol and drugs, so you give the people you're working with the grace and the dignity to find out their own truth with the first half of step one. Mark's going to talk about why it's important to start the 12 steps based on truth. Because I'll tell you, you start the 12 steps based on a lie, you get worse. Those of you that have been working with others, have you ever seen somebody get to the ninth step crazier than when they started because they got an untrue first step? Some of you have experienced that. That doesn't mean your ego is not going to really kick up and you're not going to feel crazy right toward the end of amends. That means people can finish the ninth step and be crazier than when they started because they're doing the 12 steps, a spiritual process based on a lie. So what about the difference between drug addiction and alcoholism? <clears throat> there are people in this room that are absolutely powerless over alcohol. We could talk in, for the rest of the week about that physical craving that happens for booze, and they could take or leave drugs. So I'm going to submit to you that not every alcoholic is a drug addict. So there must be a difference. I'm also going to submit to you that there are people that I have personally worked with that are absolutely powerless over drugs that can take or leave alcohol. They do not get that physical craving for booze like you and I do. The most that they might come to, and a lot of people that we've done the work with, here's their admission. My name is so-and-so, and I am an addict, and I am powerless over alcohol. And for them, that means when they drink alcohol, it takes them back to what they really like. That's not the same as being an alcoholic. That's not the same, because you're powerless over where alcohol takes you does not mean you have a physical craving for alcohol. I'm also going to throw in for debate, because I don't have this. Well, matter of fact, I think it would be a part of my truth. I think you can, you can, no, it's not part of my truth. You can be addicted to alcohol and not be alcoholic. So the analogy that helped me, and we're going to look at specific differences, and it's so draining for me to go through this every time, but, I mean, I would just like to always just sit with alkies, but that's just not the way it is nowadays. Take 100 people, put them in a log cabin for 500 days. You have to think of yourself, a normal drinker that you know. So I'm going to put me and my mom and 98 other people from anywhere in the world and pump them full of heroin, three shots a day, for 300 days. Now, my mom, we have to, we have to be clear on this because this is one of the differences. My mom is not an alcoholic. I am and the 98 other people are from anywhere in the world. You pick them from anywhere in the world and shoot them with heroin three, four times a day. How many of those 100 people, including my mom, who's not an alcoholic, will be physically addicted to the drug heroin? How many? Every single one of them, including my mom. She's not an alky. There's a difference. Subtle difference. Now, take me and my mom. She's not an alcoholic. And 98 other people from anywhere in the world, put them in a log cabin for 500 days, pump as much alcohol into their bodies as you could for 500 days. How many of those 100 people will be alcoholic? How many said, how many said all of them? 
Who said all of them? No. How many of those 100 people will be alcoholic? <laughs> and it ain't my mom. Okay? What do statistics say? One out of ten. Ten percent. Okay, let's say ten percent. National Council on Alcoholism says ten percent. How many think, well, here's an interesting statistic. The most interesting thing I learned at the whole time I worked for the National Council, um, matter of fact, the only thing I remember to this day, uh, how many think the rate of alcoholism, the percentage of alcoholics is higher on Skid Row? Higher. How many would you say higher? Than the general public. There's more alcoholics on Skid Row than in the general population. 3% less. That was always baffling to me. Right? It's about 10% out here in the world. It's about 5 to 7% on Skid Row. So now we got a, a cabin full of 100 people pumped full of booze. Me, my mom, and 98 other people. Now, and 10% of them are alky. My sponsor says, now we need to find a way to get all the non-alkies out of that cabin. He said, all you have to do is say, those that want to leave can leave, and those that want to move in can move in. I want a lease. I want a lease on the place, right? Right. And marry and marry the person who put you there. And and his mom wants to leave. And if you even mention liquor to her again, she'll hit you. And my mom wants to run out of there and never do that again. You know the fucked up thing about my mom running out of there and making up her mind to never do that again. She never does it again. If I, by mistake, snuck out because I was maybe feeling bad and made up my mind to never do it again, I'm going to be banging on the door to move back in within a couple days right? or a few hours. So now we got just the Alkies in the one cabin and 100 people strung out on heroin in the other. Now hold back the um, 100 people that are strung out on heroin. Hold back their shot for several hours. What happens to all 100 of them? Withdrawal. They're craving their drug. Now, give them a shot of their drug. What happens to the physical craving? Goes away. Oh, there's a difference. Now, go back to the 10, Alki, the ten, uh, ten Alkies and um, hold back their booze for several hours. What happens to the 10 Alkies when you hold back their drug? So, yeah, it could be different levels of, of withdrawal, right? Some might have DTs. Some might shake. Some might just be obsessed. Some might just be uncomfortable. But they're all craving booze, right? Now, give them a little bit of their drug. What happens to their craving? There's a difference. You sit down a heroin addict with an alcoholic and start talking about the physical craving, and they don't get it. They don't get the connection. One gets fixed, one wants more. They get well, he has a craving for more. Would you rather be locked in a room with a little bit of alcohol each day, or would you rather be locked in a room with none at all? No alky in the world would ever say they'd like to be locked in a room with a little bit of alcohol each day because that is absolute torture. Locked in a cell for 500 days with two shots of whiskey each day. No more, no less, no chance of getting any more. You're just forced to take two shots of whiskey each day. And I've met kids that say, hey, I'd like to be locked in a room with a little bit of something rather than nothing. At least a little bit would be better. 
And there's some differences. There's also differences in mindset. You, ever, you, you look at an alcoholic, get your hands off that buster, that's mine. What's the dope fiend want to do? I've done a lot of dope. Want to share it? There's a whole different mindset between these two. Let me tell you why this is important. People are dying not finding out this truth. And I can give you many examples, but I'll take a good one. good friend of mine, uh, Bobby W. He lives in Lubbock, Texas. Bobby's been to penitentiary three times. Bobby is a heroin addict. No more alcoholic than man the moon. He's been around, he's been around AA up till now. Thank God he's finally doing NA. Uh, for almost 20 years, he had, the three years was the longest he ever had. And, uh, Bobby with his record, if, if he did dope again, was gonna go back to the joint, which is why he went back twice. So here's what Bobby's doing. He's going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, telling you he's an alcoholic, trying to do work with alcoholics who are not drug addicts, and every time he relapses, he relapses on heroin, and he went back to the joint two times because of that. So finally, the last time he relapsed, he calls me. I met him. And I told him right from the get-go, this program is about identification. You know, it'd be like me trying to sit down and work with an overeater. And I said to him, you have got to be working this program based on your truth. Well, there's no no contempt prior to, to investigation. Well, there's no good recovery in NA and that, 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 all that bullshit, right? So his last relapse, he, he stayed out probably two, three, four months. He just damn near died. So he called me, and I said, Bobby, I only got one thing to say to you. You go to NA and you find a heroin addict who's in, who's recovered. Goodbye. And do not call me back ever again unless you do this. Four months later, he called me back and he said, you of all people, I hate to say this too, but you're right. Went to N.A. He found a heroin addict who's recovered. He's now about two years clean. He is not the same human being. He was walking into meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. He's a heroin addict. He's no more alcoholic than man the moon. Not once in all of his relapses, did he ever take a drink? And he starts every meeting with a lie. Hi, my name's Bobby. I'm an alcoholic. Trying to live a spiritual life that demands rigorous honesty. People are dying from this stuff. They're dying from this stuff. There's alcoholics sitting in NA wanting to be hip, slick, and cool. You know, the addict judges the alcoholic, and the, addict, and the alcoholic judges the addict. This is about finding out your truth. Give people the dignity to find out your truth. My experience is they are not the same. They're not the same. There are people we've worked with that have the physical craving and the mental obsession for both. You can be an alcoholic and an addict. But let's just take one piece at a time. So if all we're focused on is the physical craving, look at it with alcohol, from the doctor's opinion to the top of 23, and then if you have a drug history, go back from the doctor's opinion to the top of 23 with drugs. And so far, this is the truth that I found. With alcohol, I see the physical craving for more alcohol. When I drink, it doesn't just take me back to what I really like. Not my drug of choice, my drug of no choice. Booze will take you to your drug of no choice if you're just an addict. If you're an alcoholic, booze will create a craving for more alcohol. And then I had this drug history, and I saw I've also had the physical craving for drugs. So, so far, up to the physical craving, I'm an alcoholic addict. And then I'll show you where I found out I'm not an addict in the next part. Guy comes to my house. He says he wants to do the work. He's seven and a half years sober. He, he, he's an alcoholic addict. I said, great, let's start the work. We get to this point. He comes back a couple weeks later. He says, I need to tell you something. 
that doesn't happen with alcohol. I said, what does it happen with? He says, cocaine. I am a real addict. I said, how come you've been saying alcoholic for seven years? And he said, one of the saddest things I ever heard was somebody with that much time. He said, because they told me I am. Why was that sad to me? Nobody ever gave him the grace and the dignity to find out his own truth. Perpetuated by treatment centers that won't take your insurance unless you start your recovery based on a fundamental lie so your insurance company will cover the cost and you go into treatment. You hear horror stories in CA and NA about guys that are nothing but junkies pumped up with booze and taken into a treatment center so they can start a recovery program that demands rigorous honesty based on a fundamental lie and they're told to lie and tell them that you drink booze and give them some booze before you check them into the treatment center and they start recovery based on a fundamental lie. Now to get treatment, okay, stretch it. Come to AA and find out your own truth. Find someone that's more interested in you finding truth than convincing you you need Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd been doing this about four or five years, and I realized I thought my 12-step work was about recruiting people into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I started helping some people find out this is not where they belong, and they thanked me for helping them get free and see where they really belong or that they don't need any power at all. They got all the power they need, and they started thanking me, and my 12-step work shifted to my job is to help people find their own truth and where they belong. Help them find out, admit where they belong. If you belong to a group that hasn't helped some people see they're not alcoholic recently, you're not doing your job because every group is filled with them. And we have no right to sit around complaining about the message being watered down because it's being watered down by people that don't have what you and I have. And they can just not drink no matter what. And go into meetings, their problem gets better. And they don't understand the physical craving for alcohol any more than my mother would. She doesn't get it. She doesn't understand me, and I don't understand her. I don't know how somebody can leave a half of a drink after finishing the first one. And all your experience has to confirm to go on past page 23 is turn that last statement into a question and just sit with it. Does your personal experience abundantly, not a little, enough to convince you that once you put alcohol in your system, something happens, which makes it virtually impossible for you to stop or control the amount once you start? Can I control the amount once I start? We'll move into the next section. We'll call this section three. And we're going to now look at the mind. We're going to look at the mechanism that's going to take everyone in this room back to their next drink, if you're alcoholic. And we're going to use 20 pages. We're going to use the top of 23 to the bottom of 43. All you have to do is mark the bottom of 43 at the end of More About Alcoholism, and do not go past the bottom of 43 until you're clear on the mental obsession. Now, if that which we were just looking at is a phenomenon that takes place after the first drink, this is a phenomenon that takes place before the first drink. This is alcoholic insanity. We're going to look from the top of 23 to the bottom of 43. And just like the top of 23 ended with a summary of the whole section about the craving, the bottom of 43 will end with a summary of everything you need to be convinced of to look at the obsession. 
There's really only one instruction of how to use this section, and that is to continue to turn statements into questions. If I could give you a pertinent question for the whole section, the question would be, why are you mentally powerless over alcohol without it in your system at all? So we're still on the first. If you want to picture the first step, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash, we're still on the powerlessness. We're still on the first half of the first step. Now we're going to go from body to mind. You know where it says none of us like to admit we're bodily and mentally different from our fellows? Well, we've looked at why we're bodily different. We have a physical allergy to alcohol that creates a craving for more once it goes in your system. You're 35 years sober or 20 years sober or 15 years sober. Don't tell people you were craving alcohol today. Tell them you were obsessed about it. That goes on in your mind. The craving goes on in your body when alcohol goes into your system. Now we're going to look at what happens just before the first drink in that space. We're going to look at alcoholic insanity. What takes me back to the first drink, which then causes the craving. You know, to hook this back to the doctor's opinion, remember we read that where Dr. Silkworth told Bill what was wrong with him. This phenomenon, this allergy, this phenomenon called craving. But then he summed it up and said, unfortunately, based on our experience, chronic alcoholics like you are doomed. And you know why? Because my experience can abundantly confirm that I have a physical allergy to alcohol and I experience a phenomenon called craving. But that has never prevented me from picking up a drink again. Which is why the book goes on to say, these observations, first 33 pages about me and this physical allergy and craving, would be academic and pointless if Mark never took the first drink, therefore setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, do I believe that my main problem centers in my mind rather than in my body? See, if anyone in this room, all you raised your hand, which is half the room or more, you relapsed, what had to happen before you took the drink? Well, I just decided to drink. Yeah, that's a great one. I asked people who, who relapsed. I said, do you think you chose? Every time they say this, oh, yeah, I chose. Oh, really? You know, you got you got three Like it's, it's like this. If all of you got brutally honest about all the consequences you suffered from drinking, I mean brutally honest. You've been an emotional thief. You steal security from your mothers and fathers and husbands and wives and long about nine pages. Go to one of these malls where you're doing a survey, right? You've been sober, I don't care, a day, 15 years, I don't care. And, you, you know, these surveys, and you pull someone over and you say, listen, I'd like you to read this. This is what's happened to me when I drank. These are the consequences that I've suffered. And they, you know, they read about three pages, and as you read it, they're kind of stepping back a little bit from you. But they get done reading, and, and they say, they turn to you because they're polite, unlike us, and they say, or if they're Al-Anon, they start to get this glimmer in their eyes yeah. a little closer. For they want to hug you. But, right? let me, but let me give you a hug. Yeah. Right? But they say to you, well, how can I help you? And they said, well, here's what my question is. I'm going to choose to go pick up a drink. I want you to know what you think about that. They'll drop that clipboard and run like hell. So what's the point I'm trying to make? Alcoholic insanity, if you're a real alcoholic, alcoholic insanity is your mind telling you you have the power to choose whether you'll drink or not. How many think alcoholic insanity is the crazy stuff we do under the influence when we're drunk? How many think alcoholic insanity is the thinking that precedes the first drink without anything in our system at all? So alcoholic insanity happens with no booze in my system at my very best. 
further away from my last drink, 35 years away from my last drink, I think I have a choice. Or that this time it's going to be different. Or that after 30 years away from alcohol, I've learned better. With all that I know about alcoholism, it's not going to be the way it was 35 years ago. And I can have a couple drinks. Drinks which I see others all around me taking with impunity. Maybe I'm like that guy. Maybe I can do that. Maybe that guy that went out and just had a beer, came back. His guru told him he doesn't belong in AA. Shit, maybe I'm like, maybe all I need is a guru that tells me I don't, I don't belong in alcoholics anonymous. Here's a good one for those of you that have been around for a while. If God can heal the mental obsession and he can heal the spiritual malady, why can't he heal the physical craving? What, is God limited? God's either everything or nothing. He's removed the obsession to drink. You haven't had the obsession for years. The spiritual malady has been healed on a regular basis, a daily basis. Maybe now I can drink. I know a lady that came up against that in AA. If God is everything, why can't I drink? And she and her infinite way teacher moved to Atlanta. She's doing Joel Goldstein. Infinite way, one of the greatest men in science of mind church. And uh, she takes a drink. Nothing happened. She had one of the worst female stories I've ever heard. And she got free. See, when you're involved in a process to help people get free, sometimes they do. And who am I to say what your freedom should look like? I'll say it again. When you're involved in a process that's about real power and helping people get free, sometimes they do. What I think everybody that gets free through this process should remain in AA. Explore the myths that bind you. Now, I don't have any doubt or reservations that physical craving would happen if I was to take a drink. She did. She got to get free. Nobody's seen her for a while. They don't know how her drinking went, but that's her story. Well, it goes on to say, once in a while, let me tell the truth. The truth, strange to say, is usually we have no more idea why we took the first drink than they have. Some drinkers have excuses which are satisfied part of the time, but in their heart, well, this book keeps making me go inside to find out my truth, don't they? In their heart, they really don't know why they do it. Once this malady has a hold, they're baffled. There's the obsession. The definition of obsession is an idea that outweighs all others. There's the obsession somehow someday they'll beat the game, but they often suspect they're down for the count. How true this is, few people realize in a vague way our family and friends sense our drinking is abnormal. But everybody hopefully awaits a day when Mark will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert Mark's power of will. The tragic truth is, if I'm a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. I have lost control. So I'd like you to write down three words that you should start to look at and a couple questions about these words. And the three words are power, control, and choice. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, not some, not a few, every alcoholic. You think they mean, wait no, a minute. Wait a minute. Let me get this right. Every, every alcoholic? You mean they actually mean every alcoholic? I pass into the state from which there is, I'm sorry, I pass into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. 
This tragic situation has already arrived in practically everyone, in every case, long before it's suspected. The fact is, most alcoholics, hmm, previous paragraph said every. This paragraph says most. Maybe there's some alcoholics that haven't lost the power of choice. Maybe some are just in delusion. That's why you need to talk to all of them. The fact is, most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. You will be unable at certain times, mark that, at certain times, to bring into your consciousness with the sufficient force to stop you the memory and the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. Am I without defense against the first drink? Or the Remember, next drink. This whole chapter, we're going to continue to turn statements into questions. The almost certain consequences that would follow me taking a glass of beer do not crowd into my mind to stop me. If these thoughts occur, and I start to think it through, of the consequences, think it through, these thoughts would be hazy and readily supplanted with the old idea that this time I'll handle myself like other people. There is a complete failure of this kind of defense that would keep me from putting my hand on a hot stove when it comes to alcohol. Can I stay stopped? on my own power now that I've stopped. You know, that, that hot stove is such a beautiful example. For me. How many of you have ever burned yourself around a stove? Okay, let me ask you this question. If the burner is on high, if the burner is on high, does your mind say to you, turn the damn thing off or stay away? Right? Correct? And I'll bet you it does that from now till the day you die. Because you have a mental defense, right? You burned yourself. In my case, I, I was uh, four or five years old, and uh, my mother was boiling some water for tea, and I pulled that over on me. But to this day, when a teapot goes off, I just go ballistic. So, this crazy, stupid example, imagine alcohol as being the burner. If when you're trying to look at this idea of, can I keep myself stopped? Can I rely on my willpower? Do I have a defense? Now, if your experience is like mine, here's how it looked. I burned myself a few times. Kept going to the emergency room. Doctor said, what happened? I said, well, I was cooking something. I accidentally put my hand in the stove. He said, that's the ninth time you've been in here in a month. You better get someone else to cook for you. Pretty soon, my right arm's gone. Now I start going in to see him with my left arm. Pretty soon, both legs are gone, and I'm asking Joe to set my stump on the burner saying it won't burn my ass this time. <laughs> and the reason is I don't have any mental defense. I have no memory of the damn burn. And no knowledge of, no knowledge, nothing will help me. That's me and alcohol. And just like with the craving, the memory of the obsession from 35 years ago or 15 years ago or 10 years ago the memory of that obsession is not going to be enough to create a first step strong enough to move you through finishing amends. Which is why they used to just lock our asses up in jail. So in, how, in, in insane asylums. So how are you going to make the, the mental obsession current? A lot easier than theorizing about the craving. A lot of people have to drink again or take the test to get clear on the craving. But you can make the mental obsession current just by considering, could it happen to me today? Could I drink? Can I keep myself sober? 
This is the part of the first step where the tension, the truthful tension, the tension you need to move into the middle of to come out on the other side with a stronger first step for the experience to happen, the tension starts to... Boy, you, you would think the tension for somebody with 35 years would be a little stronger than the tension with somebody with 35 days. Because, see, if your truth is like mine, my truth is not the further away I get from my last drink, the further away I am from my next drink. If your truth is like mine, you need to realize that the further away you get from your last drink, the closer you are to your next drink. And there's no way I should have 31 days. I've never had 31 days in 18 years, let alone 35 years, let alone 14 years. I haven't brought myself this far. I realize realizing the grace of God is a dangerous thing because then you have to realize what if something happens to that power one day and I haven't brought myself this far. And once again, you got to bet on this power. My friend always says, you better do the work because the day's going to come when you're going to need it. And the scary thing is that I'd like to look at it that this chapter keeps mentioning at a certain time, at a certain time, at a certain time. Anybody see Usual Suspects in that line in that movie? The greatest trick the devil ever played on us was to convince us he doesn't exist. Well, the greatest trick your ego will play on you is not only to convince that convince you it doesn't exist, but convince you that it knows what that certain day would look like and feel like for you to drink again if you just keep that certain day from happening and those circumstances and that kind of a bad feeling keep that from happening you'll never take a drink and you have fallen in to the insanity of the ego because my i do not know what that certain day, that certain day could be feeling really great that certain day could be a day when i need to celebrate that day what a great myth to keep you in the bondage of never getting successful you ever been to one of those meetings don't get too happy don't get too successful not in Alcoholics Anonymous. I could, that certain day might be a really good day. It might be a really bad day. But, you know, it might just be one of those days where ain't much happening at all. Alcoholics love high and low. Alcoholics hate kind of, sort of, maybe, or a little. Right? I don't even relate to kind of, sort of, not even on the spiritual path. I don't relate to kind of, sort of, maybe, or little. I am all or nothing. That's going to happen to me on a day where it's just a little, little too boring and ain't much going on. And the scary thing is the book's going to bring up, it could happen on a day when there would be no thought at all. No thought. Everyone in this room that's been around for a while has probably heard an old-timer who ended up back in a bar after the fifth or sixth drink before they woke up to realize, what have I done? Asleep, on their feet, dreaming alive dreaming that they're alive before they took that first drink, not even awake, not even awake. And you think falling asleep to resentment or falling asleep to selfishness or falling asleep to a few amends doesn't have to do with that same mechanism that's bringing you to your next drink. And you don't think those unfinished amends are connected to booze. And you don't think you have an ego that's powerful enough to put you back on a bar stool failing to realize that every one of us in this room has an ego strong enough to make us feel separate from the closest thing to us. That's all it wants. It wants to create a day where I feel separate enough from you, separate enough from myself and what I really am, and separate enough from God to realize that kind of feeling again and go to a bar to fill up that separation. And my ego is not only strong enough to put me back on a bar stool, 
My ego is strong enough to make me feel a million miles away from the closest thing in the world. Closer than my next breath. It'll think, it'll make you think you're closer to money than God. It'll make you think that people in your life you're closer to than God. It will make you feel separate, distant, and apart from the thing closer than your next breath, closer than your next thought, closer than your next emotion, closer than anyone or anything you've ever had in your life. Your ego will make you feel separate from that just long enough to convince you to walk into a bar and pick up a drink. How many of you in this room have done some work with meditation? Okay, let me help you touch something. Currently, mental obsession. Can anybody in this room has ever worked with meditation? Stop your thought life anytime you want meditation and go into absolute silence? <laughs> okay. Well, isn't that interesting? If in meditation, which is desire to get still and know God, you have absolutely no control over stilling your thought life, is it possible the same thing is true about your mind taking you back to alcohol? Is it possible that can happen and there isn't a single thing you can do about it? And maybe you've been walking around in a whole bunch of grace and not totally unaware of it. If you can't still your mind in meditation, which is when you're seeking God, which is what it's all about, what in God's name makes you think you're going to still your mind when it convinces you to take a drink? I don't care how long you're sober. Next time you all meditate, don't think about elephants. <laughs> Whatever you do, the next time you meditate, don't think about elephants. Bottom of page 24, when this sort of thinking, we're talking about the mind, is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he's probably, probably placed himself beyond human aid. So stop and look at all the different forms of human aid. How many of you got children? Raise your hands. That's a form of human aid. Could you quit drinking because you had children? The love for them? That's pretty strong power, isn't it? So alcohol comes ahead of that. Some of us want to quit drinking for careers. That's a form of human aid. Could we do that? No. Some of us loved our parents. We'd like to have quit drinking for them. Could we do it for that? Go through your own experience. Is there any kind of human aid that ever kept you away from alcohol? Was there before? Oh, how about now? My sponsor said. <laughs> my group. Mine. My, my, I own mine. The book. The big book. The steps. Any form of human power. When you're new, they said, uh, uh, go to meetings, read the book, get a sponsor, and work the steps. And my mind turns that into... Those are the things that will keep you sober. And I go to more than 90 meetings in 90 days, and I see people that know the book better. You know, those scary people that can recite how it works, but they have absolutely no heartfelt experience with it. I saw them drink. I saw people that spend more time with their sponsors than me drink. I saw people that read this book drink. I saw people that went to more meetings than me drink. And I saw people since then who worked the steps and forgot a few certain things drink. And I went to Don at five and a half months, and I said, I thought you all told me to read the book, get a sponsor, work the steps, and go to meetings, and those are the things that would keep me sober. He said, no, dummy, we just hoped all of them together would get you in touch with the power that's already keeping you sober. Quit worshiping the fingers. Look at what they're pointing to. 
And a good meeting should point you to that which is already keeping you sober. And the book points you to that which is already keeping you sober. Isn't it ironic that all you and I have to do, whether you have one day or 35 years, all you and I have to do is realize something that's already there doing something for us that it's already doing. And that we're not the ones doing it. Some of us have to do a lot of work to realize it's none of the work we've done that's given us what we have. That's our own paradox. Over and over and over. To realize something that's already there. Let's look at some questions the book raises. Bottom of 24. When this sort of thinking is fully established, is it? Do I have alcoholic tendencies? We've only seen two alcoholic tendencies so far. Physical craving and a mental obsession. Those are the only tendencies. You ever heard this one lately? I've heard this on the West Coast. I never really drank. I don't really like alcohol. But my sponsor tells me I have alcoholic tendencies. My sponsor tells me I have alcoholic thinking. Well, let me tell you something. The number one tendency of an alcoholic is to drink alcohol. <laughs> and alcoholic thinking has to do with alcoholic drinking, right? Have I been placed beyond human aid? Bottom of the next page. Once we have passed into this region, from which there is no return through human aid, do I believe that? What, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? What are the? What are the? What do they mean there? <laughs> you mean that no return through human aid could actually mean no return through human aid? Well, they don't mean really no return through human aid. They mean like no return through those human aid. But my sponsor and the group and all of us together, no return through human aid. If you've passed into that region, that means some haven't. You have two alternatives. Go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of your first step. We're going to talk about this all weekend. There's a difference between memory and consciousness. The memory of your first step is when you're in the middle of unfinished amends and you're saying, of course I have a first step. Fourteen months ago, when I was in the first step, because 20 years ago, when I used to drink, and it's all you'll always hear them refer to their first step like it's a memory. The difference between that kind of first step and the consciousness of your first step you know when you're like in inventory and you're just being moved? You're being moved. It doesn't feel like you're moving yourself through inventory or amends. The consciousness of the first step is moving you through the step you're on, and then you lose that consciousness, blotting it out as best you can, or to accept spiritual help. This you will do because you honestly want to, and you are willing to make the effort. Yep, effort. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, that can't possibly mean. Middle of the next paragraph. Here's a guy, a certain American businessman, five lines from the bottom. He believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs. He was going to use mind to overcome mind. That relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. More baffling still, he couldn't give himself any satisfactory explanation for why he drank. 
Then the guy, what was this guy's name? Roland Hazard. Great name for an Alki, right? What's your last name? Hazard? <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, we heard about you, right? This guy was told by Carl Jung the same thing about the mind that uh, Bill was told by Dr. Silkworth about the body. And what uh, Roland Hazard was told about the mind was exactly what he needed. Next page, vital spiritual experience. Exactly what it would feel like. My God, have you ever heard of a better explanation of a spiritual experience than ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding force in your life are suddenly cast to one side for a new set of conceptions and motives which begin to dominate you? That is a great description of a vital spiritual experience. And then he said he couldn't make it, he couldn't make it happen for us. A spiritual lobotomy. He knew about the mind, what Dr. Silkworth knew about the body, and they both knew exactly what we needed. And both of them, if you've ever read Carl Jung's letters to Bill Wilson in, in the General Service Office records in their archives, he was really frustrated he couldn't make this thing happen for us. He's considered the father of modern-day psychology. Right? Page 29 talks about further on clear-cut directions of giving, showing how we have recovered you don't mean clear-cut. Next paragraph. Talks about the way he established his relationship with God. Over and over in this book is telling me what these steps are about. It's about my relationship with God, period, end of statement. Over and over. That's all this program is about. It's not a dogma. It's not a philosophy. It's not a creed. It's a method of seeking. It works, and it works every time. That's all it's about. It's nothing more than that. It's a method of seeking. AA is not a program to get yourself sober and keep yourself sober. It's a means of seeking a power that gets you sober, keeps you sober, begins to guide your life. Okay? Page 30. Most of us, me included, were unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different. That's all we've been looking at. Why am I bodily different is the physical craving. Why am I mentally different is the mental obsession. I can't control it when it's in my body, and I can't control it when it's not in my body. Which makes me different from normal drinkers. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless, countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, I will control and enjoy my drinking. See, there was times you had control, but did you enjoy it? And there was times you enjoyed it, but did you control it? Never had both, right? Here's a great question for you periodics. Some people in this room, there were times they had control, and there were times you didn't. Here's a great question. Were you in charge of the times you did and the times you didn't? And if you weren't, you didn't have any power of when it was going to happen anyway. That's the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many of us have pursued it into the gates of insanity or death. These people saw that they had to fully concede to their innermost selves that they were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. And I've heard people say, the first step doesn't have anything to do with admitting you're alcoholic. It has to do with admitting you're powerless over alcohol. My big book says that these people saw 
they had to fully concede to their innermost self, not up here in their mind, down here, that they were alcoholic, and that that's the first step in recovery. And the delusion that I am like other people, or presently, presently, Fatima, presently, 35 years sober, the delusion that I'm like other people, presently, has to be smashed over and over and over. And I'd be willing to bet this for some of you, like me. Every problem I've ever had, and that's a lot of stuff, every problem I have ever had sober is summed up by the delusion that I currently thought I was like other people. And it had to be smashed over and over. See, you know what one of those, one of those is that has to be smashed over and over? My neighbor is not an alcoholic. He gets mad. He does whatever he does with anger. And I'll experience some anger, and I'll start to think that I can do, and that anger and what I'm feeling is the bottom line for me, just like my neighbor. And I forget that anger for an alcoholic, the bottom line is not what they're feeling. The bottom line is that anger will take them to booze. So when you're fighting anger, you're fighting alcohol. When you're fighting fear or indulging in selfishness or dishonesty or resentment, you're not just fighting what you're feeling. You are fighting alcohol. And I'll start to think that I'm just like my neighbor and all I'm feeling is what I'm feeling. And the bottom line for me is my emotion. The bottom line for me is one thing right underneath those emotions. And that's booze. And I have to get brought back to that. Resentment is not resentment for an alcoholic. It's poison and the insanity of alcohol will return. Same with fear, same with selfishness, same with dishonesty. And we've been exploring lately in our group because we got into these questions. What does your anger have to do with you drinking again? What do your unfinished amends have to you to do with you drinking again? We're now starting to explore the things that you and I would call the positive emotions. What does comfort have to do with booze? What does having finished amends have to do with you drinking again? The more positive things. We're always focused on the negative. It's not hard for me to see that right underneath resentment is alcohol. It's a little harder for me to see that if I settle for comfort, right underneath that is alcohol too. And that booze doesn't care about my emotions, whether it's the good ones. I have to lose my attachment to the emotions I think that are good and the emotions I think that are bad. Because check this out. It's the ones you think are bad that continue to bring, bring you back to God on a regular basis. Don't hate your teachers. Don't hate the things that continue to bring you back to God. And the delusion that I'm like other people where a circumstance, the good circumstances, you've seen people drink behind wealth and promotion and great jobs just as much as you've seen Alkies drink over being fired and being broke. Circumstance and emotional state have nothing to do with me drinking again. The next paragraph's a good one. When you're looking at this idea about choice, substitute the word choice for control. We alcoholics and men and women have lost the ability to choose whether we will drink. We know no real alcoholic will ever recover choice. All has felt at times we were regaining choice, but such intervals usually brief or inevitably followed by still less choice, which led in time to pitiful and comprehensible demoralization. Here's the consideration for those three words. Power, control, and choice. If you lose one, you lose all three because they're all the same. If you're powerless over alcohol, there is no control and there is no choice. You can't have, you can't be powerless over alcohol and somehow regain control and today have a choice. Those terms are not, they are synonymous. They are synonymous. Power, control, and choice mean the same thing. 
And we are men and women who lost their legs and we're not going to grow new ones. We're not going to get choice back or control. What we're trying to do here is admit we're powerless. If you're powerless, there is no control or choice. Lose one, you lose all three. Now you get over to page 31. We need to talk about this. We've covered 41 pages in the book looking at two things, the body and then the mind. The bottom of the page says we do not want, we do not like to. It doesn't say we won't. We don't like to pronounce any individuals alcoholics. But you can quickly diagnose yourself. How? Basically, you've got 41 pages. If I've gone through the work up to this point in time and this person still isn't convinced, then this book gives me some instructions to give them. Step over to the nearest bar, bar room. Try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It won't take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of the jitters to get a full knowledge of your condition. Goes on to talk about, though there's no way of proving it, early on, most of us could have stopped. It's interesting. Difficulty is few of us had enough desire to stop while there's yet time. Huh, I wonder what that means, yet time. Then it talks about this this next guy. I, I love this guy's story because this guy saw basically that he had a phenomenon called craving and lost control. And so at age 30, he had a sufficient reason. He made up his mind. His mind, the book says this. <clears throat> Turn to page uh, 33. Young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think that they can stop as he did on his own willpower. He's 30 years old, saw that he had a phenomenon called craving, lost control. He quit on his willpower. Stay away from alcohol for 25 years. Then his head said, his head said, it'd be okay to take a drink. I've accomplished my goal. He picked up a drink. He's dead. He's dead in four years. So what happened over 25 years? The book says he had willpower to quit. He had a phenomenon called craving. Guess what he didn't have then? He didn't have a mental obsession, did he? It says on his willpower, his, he quit. But 25 years went by. So what happened to him? He picked up a drink and he's dead. What happened to him is this is a progressive illness, both in body and mind. 25 years go by, he picks up a drink, he dies in four. He no longer has the power. Later on in the book, they're going to talk about um, <coughs> subtle foe. And the next page on 33, they're going to talk about a lurking notion. I belong to a group in Santa Monica that is so anal, they'll spend a meeting talking about what would a lurking notion look like if it lived in your apartment over in the corner. <laughs> and we actually talked for an hour and a half about these hairy little creatures that would live in the corner of your apartment that sometimes your friends could see that you couldn't, that would change shape and color each year, and the lurking notions and subtle foes. I see these little hairy creatures in my apartment. And a friend of mine that was taking me through the work this time saw one in my apartment that I couldn't see. And you know how he saw it? We read this line on the previous page on 32 toward the bottom, about seven lines from the bottom. He fell victim to the belief that practically every alcoholic has that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink like other men. And he said, you know what, Joe? Your long period of sobriety has not led you to believe you can drink like other people. Your long period of sobriety has led you to believe you cannot drink like other people and that you can control God through spiritual practice. And he had me. Because I had come to believe 
that with the right amount of this and the right amount of the work and the right amount of meditation, I could control that power which has more power than me, that I was controlling God through spiritual practice. And I had fallen victim to the belief that my long period of sobriety had qualified me to not drink like normal people. And I saw it, and I couldn't get out of it. And I went to this man that I was seeing on a regular best spiritual director at the time. And I was not even look. I don't talk to him about my first step. He doesn't have a first step. He's not an alcoholic. And I just told him where I was at, and I said, um, I've got this idea that I can control God through spiritual practice, and I can't get myself out of it. And he giggled, and he smiled, and he said, Oh, you think you can control a gift. And I don't know why I needed to hear it, and I don't know why it brought me out of it. But him saying that brought me out of my current delusion at the time, because I thought I could control something which is given to me by something with more power than me. And every, every year there's going to be new, new looking notes. See, I'm glad I'm not operating in the world 14 years sober from a first step from 14 years ago. My first step this year is a lot different than my first step 14 years ago. Turn over to page 42. There's so much we'd like to cover, but by noon we want to try and be... I really want to spend some time on the spirituality, but just a couple quick points here. We didn't, this is not talked about much in meetings. It's interesting. They're talking about Fred. I really love Fred. The day Fred got drunk and alcoholic and Sandy came back, there wasn't a cloud in the horizon. His life was perfect. Huh. And his mind convinced him to go take a drink. But it says here, they said that though I did raise the defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that happened and more. For what I've learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I wonder what they mean by that. I knew from that moment I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help me in a strange mental blank spot. How can you think through the drink in a strange mental blank spot? Hell, I've been trying to create a strange mental blank spot in meditation. I can't even do it. But I've been walking around, suffering times I've been in strange mental blank spots. He said I'd never been able to understand people who said a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. Can we just stay on this until yeah. and come back and yeah. again? Here's another test on the top of 34. See, they gave you a test to find out about the craving, and that's, that's trying some controlled drinking. Here's a test to find out about can you keep yourself stopped. If anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area, just try leaving liquor alone for a year. If you're a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there is scant chance of that success. So one is about can I control the amount once I start. If you're not sure, step over to the nearest bar and try some controlled drinking. The Marty Mann test. Two drinks a day, no more, no less. And an alcoholic just bringing that test to your consciousness will create all that you need to see if you're alcoholic. My mom giggles and says, oh, that'd be a little too much, honey. I don't think I could have two drinks a day for 30 days. And somebody says it to me, you know, Joe, we don't think you're alcoholic. And I bet you could take two drinks a day for 30 days. I go right into stark raving terror. And that's the reaction they look for. Because an alcoholic knows in his heart of hearts, there's no way I could do that. Well, now maybe I can keep myself stopped. Well, try staying stopped on your own power. 
Leave AA and keep yourself sober. If you haven't tried to stop enough to convince yourself, you either got the truth in your experience all those years or you don't. You've either drank enough and tried to control alcohol enough and tried to stop enough to be clear on these two ideas. The only two ideas we need to be convinced of in the first 53 pages of the book, 10 Roman numerals in the doctor's opinion and 43 pages in the book, 53 pages to get across two ideas. And then on the 54th page, they're going to repeat themselves again because they know who they're writing this to. They repeat two points over and over. And I saw something interesting with the stories recently when Mark and I were doing this that I had never seen with the stories. They give you stories where the circumstances in the guy's life are good. They give you circumstances in the guy's life where he's lost everything. And the insanity still returned. They give you examples in the stories where he's feeling bad, examples in the stories where he's feeling good, so you can get free of the idea that emotion or circumstance have anything to do with the mental obsession. Because once again, just like the physical craving, we'll start with that first question again. Why do you drink so much every time you start? Well, because she left. Well, what about when she stayed? Well, because I felt bad. Well, what about when you felt good? Well, because the team won. Well, what about when the team lost? And I get free of the physical craving having anything to do with emotional state or mental upset or uh, circumstance or behavior. Our behavior patterns vary. Our circumstances are as varied as there are a number of people in this room. From the penthouse to skid row, I get the physical craving. The physical craving does not care where or how or how I'm feeling. The physical craving just happens. Now, what about the mental obsession? Well, I got the mental obsession because she left. Well, what about when she stayed? Well, because it was rainy. Well, what about when it was sunny? Well, because when she left. What about when she stayed? Well, because I was feeling bad. Well, didn't you ever get the mental obsession when you were feeling good and there wasn't a cloud on the horizon? Well, what about when you weren't feeling much at all? And you get free of a whole lot of baggage that has nothing to do with what joins you and I with the physical craving and the mental obsession. Middle of 34. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. Funny, it doesn't say one day at a time. We're assuming, of course, that the, that the reader desires to stop altogether. There's a big question. What would the questions be? Are you able to drink moderately? No. Can you stop altogether? No. Do you want to stop? Yes. Well, whether you can quit on a non-spiritual basis without God depends on the extent to which you have already lost the power to choose whether you will drink or not. See, there's two places you have to look at choice now that they're going to start to bring it up. I had no problem seeing that when I got here, I had no choice to stay sober. I have problems sometimes thinking that now I do to not drink. Well, I don't have any choice to drink, but I have a choice not to drink. No, you've either lost choice or you don't. Whether you're going to be able to quit without God depends on the extent to which you've lost the power to choose whether you will drink or not drink. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. Top of 35, the mental state that precedes a relapse. 
for obviously this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Guy at the bottom of the page failed to enlarge his spiritual life. He drank several times in rapid succession. They worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for who he had deep affection, yet he got drunk again. Bottom of the page, <clears throat> he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. That, par that paragraph with squiggly lines is two words, suddenly and vaguely. Insanity comes suddenly and the insanity comes vaguely. When, whatever the precise definition of this word may be, we call it plain insanity. Lack of proportion of the ability to think straight. Five lines down, a curious mental phenomena that would run right along with your sound reasoning. Imagine your good thinking running along a specific line. They're saying that right along, running right alongside that line of sound reasoning, there would invariably run some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink, and your sound reasoning would fail to hold you in check. Bottom of the next paragraph. Little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation. <laughs> during the period of meditation. <laughs> Little... <laughs> Little serious or effective thought during the period of premeditation, <laughs> that's a great word, of what the terrible consequences might be. Your behavior is absurd and incomprehensible with respect to the first drink of that as an individual with a passion for jaywalking. This is the story where I found my insanity. If you haven't done the example of substituting drinking for the jaywalking, do that. Uh, when I uh, first saw the movie uh, Pulp of Fiction, I had an out-of-body experience, and then I remembered why. In that scene where she jammed the needle in the heart, I was living up in the mountains in uh, Colorado and been on a five-day run, drinking and uh, doing some uh, cocaine. I got home about 4 or 5 in the morning. The woman I lived with was a paramedic. Thank you, God. And uh, what happened is if you do enough alcohol and you do enough coke, you can suffer what's called respiratory failure and your heart stops and your lungs quit and that kind of stuff. Well, it happened to me and uh, she had one of those paramedic kits there and so she got out that long needle and jammed it in my chest and thumped it, thumped it, shot my heart full of nitroglycerin. I sat up just like that woman did and then they took me on a flight for life ride and I was in a Porter Hospital in Denver, Colorado for five days and um, after the fifth day, they discharged me, and I, and I still remember this so vividly because I put my hand on the door, and this is what my mind said. It said, we live, we better go have a drink and celebrate. So I did that. So I did that. Now, that may just be a little different than some of you, but I submit all of you had that same kind of an experience. That's called alcoholic insanity, and there's nothing any human power can do to restore me to sanity around that kind of a thought process. Then... We both have to move past those times where there were drama and circumstance or a terrible emotional state. Because I used to always share the one where 28 days out of the Michigan State Penitentiary 
having just made my second report to my parole officer, and he gave me every reason why I shouldn't take a drink, the conditions of my parole. They told me I couldn't hang out with ex-felons, I couldn't go to bars, I couldn't drink, I couldn't take drugs, and I couldn't leave the county. You might as well tell a guy like me that you, you, you just can't live, because that's what I do. I take a drink, I take drugs, I hang out in bars with ex-felons, and then I leave the county. That's just what I do. <laughs>